And when I saw that, I thought that really encapsulates what I've encountered in the progressive world as the gospel. So their message would be, stop viewing yourself as a sinner. Stop viewing yourself as um, inherently evil or inherently bad. You need to start viewing yourself as inherently good, united with God, and realize that. So in the progressive mind, your sin doesn't separate you from God. If you feel separated from God, it's self-imposed. It's something that yeah, your yeah. own shame is sort of um, causing you to think is going on. But what you really need to do is just realize that you are beloved, that you've never been separated. God is with you. He loves you. Welcome to the Guilt Grace Gratitude Podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Are you in the Orange County or Santa Ana area? We are exploring a church plant, Santa Ana Reformed with the oversight and accountability of Oceanside URC and Reverend Danny Hyde. If you are interested or you know someone who might be interested in the area, please check out our show notes for a link to sign up for updates. Our Twitter or Instagram at guiltgracepod or Santa Ana URC for the same signup link or simply email us at santaannareformed at gmail.com. We begin meetings on October 28th at 6.30 p.m. at 4th Street Market in downtown Santa Ana. Now on with the episode. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. And we have an exciting book club episode today. It's with Elisa Childers on her new book, Another Gospel, a lifelong Christian seeks truth in response to progressive Christianity. It's published by Tyndale. And we're going to jump right in here in a moment. And as always, just to remind you guys about our show notes, there's going to be a link so you guys can purchase this book for yourself, some information about Elisa, and as well as uh, some links to find reformed churches near you if you're still looking for a church to call home. There's also a link for the Society of Reformed Podcasters where you can find other like-minded podcasts out there. So We'll jump right in. And how you doing, Elisa? I'm great. Good to be with you guys today. Yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on. Kind of a funny connection is growing up, your band, Zoe Girl, was my sister's favorite band. Nice. <laughs> so I know there's I know there's more, yeah, more beyond that, but that was that was uh that was a funny little like, oh, I didn't I didn't know that's who you were. Yeah, I know. It was funny because a lot of people didn't make that connection until they read the book. Uh, or I'll get comments on YouTube where somebody will say, oh my gosh, I just realized I've been listening to your podcast for a year and I was a Zoe Girl fan, but I didn't realize it was the same person. <laughs> yeah, yeah cool. that's true. Well, uh, Lisa, do you want to explain some of your background, maybe introduce the audience? It'd be crazy if they don't already know who you are, uh, but please uh, let everyone know who you are. Well, I grew up um, not far from where you guys are. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley in uh, the LA area. And my parents were just genuine Christian people. My dad was actually a Christian recording artist as well. Um, so, you know, my whole life he would travel and 
uh, do music and I would even go travel with him when I was younger and sing to my little Sandy Patty track and uh, you know some of my my gospel tracks and got my my sort of my practice as a singer that way and <clears throat> became a Christian at a very young age. In fact, I don't remember a time before uh, I was aware of the presence of God or that I believed that the Bible was God's word. I sort of, you know, made it official when I was five. My mom, <clears throat> I remember my mom calling me into the living room and saying, do you want to, I don't, I don't know how she worded it. Maybe she said, ask Jesus in your heart or something. I don't know. And I just remember <laughs> being confused and thinking, well, I already, he's already in my heart. I already know Jesus. I, I'm already like, like, so, but I did, you know, I prayed a prayer or whatever. And, um, but, you know, I just, I've loved Jesus as far back as I can remember. I've always been aware that I was a sinner, that I needed a savior and um, had the Holy Spirit working in my life um, from a very, very young age. I got very involved in ministry in high school and even after high school, I moved to New York for a couple of years and did some inner city ministry. And so it's it just, um, I grew up with a lot of that type of uh, inner city ministry. My mom was on staff at the Fred Jordan Mission in LA. We'd go down there on weekends and my dad did street evangelism. And so um, it, it was it was interesting because you when you do street evangelism, like on Hollywood Boulevard on Halloween, you're going to meet some interesting people, right? Yeah, you're going to yeah. hear skeptical claims against Christianity. Uh, but nothing ever rattled me because I just thought, oh, well, they're not Christians. They're, of course, they don't believe. Mm -hmm. And um, so it really wasn't until I was an adult, and this is what I write about in my book, is an experience I had at a church here in Tennessee. I've lived in Tennessee since uh, about 99. And it was a, uh, a, it was just an evangelical, non-denominational church at the time. And the pastor invited me to be a part of a smaller study group. And it was in that study group that just about everything I ever believed about the gospel and about Jesus and the Bible, all of that was sort of picked apart and explained away, deconstructed, if you will. Of course, I didn't, yeah. I didn't know what that was back then, but that's what was going on. And so long story short, uh, it threw me into my own faith crisis after we left the church. And um, I just cried out to God and just said, God, if you're real, if you exist, then I need to know what the answers are to some of these things that have come up in this class. And so the Lord led me to apologetics and used apologetics to reconstruct my faith that had really been deconstructed by this pastor. And that church went on years later to become a progressive mm -hmm. Christian church. That's why I, I, mm. I'm so passionate to interact with progressive Christianity. But essentially, the Lord used apologetics to help rebuild my faith. And so it's just a joy to get to be able to help some other people who might be going through something similar. Yeah, we were talking before the show started about some other people that other people may know um, who are part of Deconstruction Podcast or part of the Deconstruction Movement. Uh, but how... so. Kind of in general, too. How how does your book and how how do you in your book interact with progressive? You don't you don't just call them bad and terrible people, but you actually interact kind of academically within the apologetic realm. So how 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 do you interact with people in your podcast and your book on the grounds of Bible being God's word? Yeah, so that's um, I appreciate you saying that because yeah, a lot of my friends are had be, have become progressive Christians, and so um, these are people that I love, people that um, you know that that it's just been a long journey, and so there's there's just a lot of emotional connection there, and um, I really understand. I think you know, especially why a lot of people have walked away from the church. There's yeah. there's a lot of um, church abuse situations that cause people to just walk away entirely, or things like that. But I think you know, ultimately, and I talk about this in my book too, 
is it really does come down to what one thinks about the Word of God, you know. So in progressive Christianity, largely speaking, and I should probably say this before we go into too much analysis, is that, you know, progressive Christianity is hard to define because it's very fluid. Yeah. It's constantly changing. There's a lot of different beliefs that fall under the, the name progressive Christianity. And so when I did my deep dive research a few years ago, and read the books and tried to listen to their podcasts and try to really understand where they're coming from, I found it to be really hard to define what it is because, like I said, it's just very fluid. Yeah. But what I did discover is that progressive Christians aren't as united in what they affirm, but they're pretty united in what they deny. And so one of those is going to be the view of the Bible. So if historically we, we look at Christians, of course, have disagreed over so many things over the course of church history, predestination. I mean, you know, you guys are a reformed podcast, so you're going to have a specific view of that. And we've disagreed about a lot of things, but the orthodox view of the Bible is that we're going to settle those arguments based on what Scripture says. Yeah. So in other words, Scripture is our authority to to inform us as to what the truth is about a particular doctrine or teaching. We're, and so in that way, we can say that the Bible is God's Word, right? This is, of course, God used human authors to write the, His Word, but, but it's His words. The words themselves are inspired by God, and so they're authoritative for our lives. And but yet in the progressive view, it's sort of flipped upside down. So you're going to hear progressive Christians say things like the Bible is a human book about God. Yep. So either they will entirely make it human or they'll say, no, it still has some divine inspiration, but it's primarily human. And so that would be the, the sort of um, the, the opposite view that I would say historically Christians have had and what now is the view of progressive Christians. Yeah, and I've, I've kind of heard it said before, too, it's it's man's attempt, not at thinking God's thoughts after him, but is his own understanding or his experience of who God is versus it being God's word. That's right. In fact, in his book, A New Kind of Christianity, Brian McLaren talks about the Bible almost with the analogy of fossils. You know how um, yeah. they'll, they'll dig down at the fossils, dust them off, and then we can we can look and we can analyze and we can understand what people believed about God in the times and places they lived in. But, you know, we've come to, as as he says later in that paragraph, he says, we've come to a higher and wiser view of God now. So we can look back. And that's why in progressive Christianity, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, I disagree with the Apostle Paul because Paul had these biases or these prejudices against yeah, women. Yeah. And that's why he said that. But, you know, we know more now. And so, again, that, that's in line with the idea that it's constantly changing. It's progressing, right? Christianity itself, yeah, in a way, yeah. is progressing in the in the progressive Christian's uh, paradigm. Yeah, and I I loved your book. It's incredible. I uh, couldn't put it down. I knocked it out in a few days. And I, what I like about it is it's a very personal story that you walk us through with your story, obviously. But it's also as you come to these situations and uh, interactions with a certain uh, pastor and church that you were at you address these apologetics that you come across and you answer really hard questions. A lot of people either don't know, or if they, um, or they affirm to, if they're um, more on the progressive Christianity route and, or deconstruction. Um, so I guess Mike, and actually I like that you cited uh, Michael Kruger a few times. We've had him on the show. He's great with apologetics 
And so I, I can tell, you know, you've done a ton of research in answering all these questions. Uh, a question I would have would be, I know it's really hard to define what progressive Christianity is per se, um, but how would someone know if their pastor is more of a deconstructionist, a progressive Christian uh, versus more of a confessional historic Christian? Yeah, that's a good question. I I wrote a blog post on my website called Five Signs Your Church Might Be Heading Toward Progressive Christianity. And now I wrote that several years ago. And since then, even just the movement of progressive Christianity has grown so much and has yeah. become yeah. much more front and center in people's uh, news feeds and, and all of that. But I still think it stands. I, I, I And so some of, some of the things I would be looking for in your church is definitely everything I was just talking about regarding the Bible. Definitely be looking for an emphasis on the humanity of the Bible over an emphasis of the divine. Uh, it, of course, it's perfectly orthodox and correct to say that God used human authors. We're going to see their personalities reflected. We're going to see their grammar styles reflected. We're going to see their cultural contexts reflected. Uh, so they weren't just dictating, like they didn't just go in a trance and become like a human typewriter. Um, certainly we acknowledge that, but but there, I would be looking for an emphasis on the human part to the, to the extent that it would actually um, cause you to question what was actually written as far as it being God's word. And so that, that would be one thing to look for. I also think you need to look for a redefinition of terms, of, of historic terms, and even redefinitions of words. One of the things I experienced and I write about in my book is that with the progressive pastor, I would be saying something like divine inspiration, and he would be saying divine inspiration, but we mean two, we meant two completely different things. I meant it in the classic sense of that I just described. He meant it more like the that God uses the Bible to become very inspiring to you or inspire something in you, much like a C.S. Lewis book or a Tozer book or something like that. And so definitely be looking for, make sure the terms are defined because in the progressive world, they're going to be using words like tolerance, love, justice. All of these words are going to be meaning something entirely different than you probably think they mean. So look for that. Look for a willingness to redefine and even reject core doctrines of the Christian faith. And we were kind of talking about this before we came on the air, but in progressive Christianity, they, they want to put all the beliefs on the same level. Whereas we know even from the creed that Paul recorded in 1 Corinthians 15, that um, not all beliefs are on the same level. In yep, fact, he yep. said, what I'm about to deliver to you is of utmost importance. Like these are more important than than everything else. This is where mm -hmm. it starts. This We have to agree on this stuff. So there's precedent for us to say, no, all beliefs are not on mm -hmm. the same level. That's yeah, why that's you and I might have a different view on, you know, which gifts of the spirit have continued or ceased or something like that. I don't even know what your view is, but we, we might differ on that. But we agree on what those core essential doctrines of the faith are. And so um, oftentimes, you know, that could be one thing you look for. Are they putting all doctrines on the same level? Are they considering, you know, and, and they'll do that in a way to make you not think the essentials are that essential. Mm -hmm. essential. That's that's kind of the, the end game there. Uh, also, you know, look for what they consider to be the gospel, because in progressive Christian churches, this whole narrative of the fall of man, uh, sin nature being passed down, sin separating us from God, the atonement, 
and final judgment, you know, the resurrection of Jesus, that whole storyline um, is not going to be considered to be what the gospel is in progressive churches. In fact, they probably won't talk about that much. If they do, they'll talk about it negatively, whereas the gospel becomes more of a secularly defined cultural social justice. Mm -hmm. And I worded that very carefully on purpose because God is just. It's one of his attributes. And so, yes, Christians, it, justice should be very important to Christians. But the way that it's defined in progressive churches is really more along the lines of culture, um, which is not that everybody would would have a fair and, and equal opportunity, but that all of the outcomes have to be the same. And, um, and of course, you have to actually be unjust to make that happen in many cases. So just be looking for, for things like that. Also, an emphasis over pers of personal conscience or feelings over facts. Um, there's a real emphasis in personal conscience in the progressive movement. And it, even in some of the creeds on churches, you'll see that, that they believe in the power of a personal conscience over even biblical authority or something like that. Yeah, and that, that kind of leads me to um, my next question with so with regards to apologetics, so you got into apologetics after listening to this pastor. Um, what what turns you kind of first to apologetics? And you don't go the route that I think other people might go. You went backwards, way backwards into church fathers, into manuscript history. So why, why that specifically, instead of just saying, here are arguments you can use now, you say, no, let's go back to historic Christianity. Let's go back to the fathers. Let's go back to the manuscripts. So yeah. what got you into it? And then yeah. Um, yeah, why why use those instead of contemporary arguments? Yeah. Well, the reason I did that is because a lot of the people that were in that class with me uh, in the progressive church, they were walking away from the, the only Christianity they had known. And it, just in the very small class, we had one person who grew up in a very hyper legalistic environment where he was basically told, like any other Christian who believes any different on any of these points is going to hell and we're the only real Christians. And it was just a very small and it's very legalistic. And then there was another person who was walking away from more of a faith and prosperity type background where they were under the impression that if you pray, God is, is going to heal every single person every single time. And his wife had had this chronic illness and all the prayer chain was going through the church and everything. And he basically walked away because, or at least from that church and into the progressive church, because prayer didn't work for him. He didn't think it worked. And so that was based on the Christianity he knew. And others would tell their stories. And what became very clear to me early on was all of my friends are rejecting a version of Christianity that they grew up with. Now, I had a pretty good experience with Christianity, not perfect, of course. Uh, but but generally speaking, the Christians I grew up with were the real deal. They lived what they said they believed. And they weren't perfect, but that's part of that's kind of the point. They would repent. They would read the Bible. They they loved people. And so I just thought, well, if if I, you know, because I had at that point sort of been deconstructed by this pastor, like, I don't even know if this is true. So early on, some of the arguments for the existence of God, those made a lot of sense to me very early on and very quickly. But then it was like, okay, but it now it comes to Christianity. I have to be willing to walk away from whatever version I had, if it's not the right one. Hmm. And so I don't want to either stay or leave based on a faulty understanding of what Christianity is. That's why I went back to the earliest sources to find out what is Christianity? What has made it unique in the world for 2000 years? What did the earliest Christians think Christianity was? And then trace that through church history. Of course, we see that start to go off the rails, even almost from the beginning. But the reformations, the councils, things that were, were held were, were to... Uh, to keep it 
according to that, you know, historic Christianity. So that's the journey I went on. And it was a little scary because I had never in my life, I grew yeah. up in a kind of a more touchy-feely, charismatic type environment. So I had never been taught systematic theology. I had never been taught hermeneutics. I had a, I realized later I had a, had a very subjective way of interpreting the Old Testament. Mm. And so I had made a lot of corrections along the way. But that core, that, that core that my parents gave me was what I saw reflected in what I read mm. in the earliest sources. And so um, that that's why I chose to do it that way, because you can't combat progressive Christianity with, because they're going to probably agree with the cosmological argument. I mean, Rob Bell had a book about God. Of course, I think it leaned a little new age in a lot of spots, but a lot of what he was doing is what we do as apologists, tracing through from the Big Bang or whatever. And, you know, it's, it, it, so it was, I wanted to make sure that what I was researching was the real thing so that I could evaluate the real thing. Do I accept or reject this? Yeah, I thought it was incredibly helpful because you do, you go back to the root, you show the Bible is true, and these early church fathers were not just making stuff up out of thin air century, centuries later. Yeah. You, know, so you, you really, it was helpful to start where you started and then work through. Um, talking about some essentials and on page 232 of your book, you, you list the essentials of really what it means to be, call yourself a Christian, really. Um, I think a really good part that would be good to clarify for the gospel is how does progressive Christianity disagree or deny the atonement of Christ? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a big one. It's a it's a big one that you'll hear a lot in progressive Christianity. And of course, it's built upon what they think the nature of man is. Uh, you know, they don't, even going back before the atonement, as I mentioned, they don't really believe that your sin separates you from God. So that when you get to the atonement, they have to make sense of why Jesus died on the cross. And so of course, biblically speaking, I think we would all agree the Bible uses a lot of different types of language to describe what Jesus accomplished. I mean, we could plumb the depths of that for the rest of our lives and and not, you know, understand the fullness of all of it. There's there's our legal metaphors. There is, uh, you know, of course, you hear about all these theories like the Christus Victor theory, which, you know, is the the idea that Jesus died to defeat the power of sin and death. Um, and And yes, of course he did. And he he did show us what it looks like to be an example of forgiveness. He did all of those things. But if you don't have one, if you didn't, if you deny one, which is basically just I'm going to even speak of it broadly as substitutionary atonement, which is just the idea that Jesus died in your place as your substitute, as a sacrifice to God. You know, and, and within that is going to be him appeasing God's wrath and all of this. If you take that element away, the other ones that we would also affirm are going to lose all meaning because if Jesus died to defeat the power of sin and death, but I'm still a sinner with no reconciliation for my personal sin, then that does me no good. If he's just an example of someone who forgives, but he didn't actually die to cleanse me of my own personal sin, well, then that does me no good, except just, you know, that's good. I'll I'll try to be more like Jesus, I guess. But I, I think for me, you know, I knew that I, I, like I mentioned, ever since I was a kid, I've known that I was a sinner in need of a savior. And when the atonement was starting to be 
talked about like this abusive doctrine. And so, so to give people an idea of what that's about, in the progressive mindset, the idea that God the Father would require the blood sacrifice of his only son, this implicates the moral character of God turning him into a cosmic child abuser. And so it's often referred to as cosmic child abuse, particularly yeah, this yeah. view of substitutionary atonement, especially the view of penal substitutionary atonement, which brings more of the punishment angle in that Jesus took our punishment and satisfied God's wrath. And so um, th these are ideas in the progressive that are just, I mean, they're anathema to progressives. This is, in their view, this is pagan. This is Christians imitating pagan cultures around them, seeing them sacrifice to their gods, and they think that's what Jesus was doing, but God wouldn't do that. And that's just, you know, there's no way that God would require that because that would make him a cosmic abuser. And so um, that that's something that we have to spend a lot of time on. If you're going to be interacting with progressive Christianity, you, you have to do some homework on that and really know what you believe about why Jesus died on the cross. What's the divine purpose there? And um, to be able to answer some of that stuff. Yeah. And so along those lines, too, I mean, even the title of your book, Another Gospel, assumes that progressive Christianity has a version of the gospel that's different than conservative Christianity or um, historic Christianity. So, I mean, there, it's a, it's a, it's always a wide spectrum that they, that they're going to believe, but in general, what kind of gospel will, cause the progressive will say, yeah, we believe in the gospel in a sense, but the, like you said, they have different definitions. So generally speaking, what is their gospel in distinction to what we would say the gospel is? And then behind that, um, again, not to get too much into the weeds, but where does kind of the modern progressive movement start from mm -hmm. where it's not just a monolithic movement right now, a contemporary right. movement, it, it comes from somewhere. So kind of those two questions, how does it feed into it? And what, like, what generally speaking is their gospel? So I found a very concise definition of the gospel on a progressive church's website. And it just said the good news, and then of course that's capitalized, meaning gospel, the good news is that you have never been separated from God. Mm. And when I saw that, I thought that really encapsulates what I've encountered in the progressive world as the gospel. So their message would be, stop viewing yourself as a sinner, stop viewing yourself as um, inherently evil or inherently bad. You need to start viewing yourself as inherently good, united with God, and realize that. So in the progressive mind, your sin doesn't separate you from God. If you feel separated from God, it's self-imposed. It's something mm -hmm. that yeah, your yeah. own shame is sort mm -hmm. of um, causing you to think is going on. But what you really need to do is just realize that you are beloved, that you've never been separated. God is with you. He loves you. And of course, there is just a gajillion things that this is built upon. There's, I mean, we could go in so many different directions to give the why they believe that. I think it's deeply rooted in, in a view of creation called panentheism, which we see mm -hmm. yep, taught yep. so often in progressive Christianity. But but ultimately, I think if I, I think that's a perfect sum up of the progressive gospel, and that's going to play out though, because there's still there's still going to need to be action in the progressive world, and so that's why they're so social justice oriented. A lot of critical theory, critical race theory, advocate for the right causes. All of that's tied in with like. Hey, all every all of creation's already united with God. Let's bring mm. the kingdom of God to earth now. And so it almost becomes this like Marxist utopia type vision. Yeah. But of yeah. course, historically speaking, we know that we're not going to get that utopia <laughs> no. on in this life. It's yeah. not going to happen. In fact, you know, it's funny is like the whole Marxist idea of equality and equity. It, we're not even going to have that in heaven. The Bible talks about rewards in heaven. Every, every Christian, you know, we're saved by grace. Mm. Of course, our works don't save us. 
But the Bible talks about like award rewards are going to be given and those are going to be different. Not everybody's going to have the mm. same rewards. And True. so even heaven isn't that Marxist utopia that so many people are going for on earth. But you also asked about the history of it. I mean, it's it's like how it, really the question is how far back you want to go, because I think yeah. you can honestly trace yeah. it all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Yeah. But for, um, you know, probably for our purposes, I, I think that when we go back to the German higher criticism scholarship that was emerging in the late 1800s, early 90s, even going yep. back a little yep. earlier to the to the rise of Unitarianism in the United States, a lot of that sound like when yeah. you read some of the theologians from that era, it, they sound in the so 1700s. much. Yeah, they sound so much like the progressive uh, authors today. But, you know, that German higher criticism, desupernaturalizing the mir miraculous events of the Bible, mm -hmm. focusing more on the moral stories we can learn from them, I think that really provided the seedbed. Of course, we saw the, the church kind of split into the Protestant main lines. Those were in decline. I mean, I've started to say this, and I, I don't think it's an exaggeration, and I don't think it's just too rhetorical. I actually think this is pretty accurate. But we see the Protestant mainline that adopted all of that theology in decline today. Uh, but the progressive church is booming, and I think it's kind of like parasitic in the sense that it burned its way through the Protestant mainlines, and it's looking, its host is dying, and it's looking for a new host. And so it's it's kind of like emerging again in the evangelical world, which really we can trace back to the late 2000s, early, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, late, ni late 90s, early 2000s in, yeah, the, emergent, in the emergent movement yeah. that began with Brian McLaren, Tony Jones, some of these guys are still really involved with progressive Christianity. And then in the book, I, I, I talk about that history and even how, you know, I, people may remember that famous tweet from John Piper where he says, farewell, Rob Bell, yep. like yep. the tweet heard round the evangelical world. <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. you know, so the, so gatekeepers like John Piper were like, no, we're not doing this. Like, whatever this is, we're not doing this to go somewhere else. And it, it was effective in a certain sense, but that also sort of coincided with the rise of the internet. So progressive Christians in the emergent church, they didn't really go away or die out. A lot of people think they died out. They really didn't. They just were forced underground. Mm -hmm. But because of the internet, they could find other people and can they could keep going and grow and grow and grow. And Brian McLaren even wrote in a blog post in 2012 that the emergent movement has not gone anywhere. It's just, it, it went underground, but it's grown. And he even said, we don't use the E word anymore. Sometimes it's progressive. That was 2012. And so I think today that is the term everybody uses is progressive Christian. And so it, it's really, it's really, I think, just been around. You can trace it even back to some of the earliest heresies, um, like Mar uh, Martianism and some of that stuff. But yep. Um, in its modern iteration, I probably go back to the 1800s, but it, it's sort of been on a on a journey since then, and that's where we're at today. Yeah, I and mean, so maybe kind of defining or clarifying concisely. So almost like the progressive Christian gospel is a psychological gospel. If you don't if you don't feel right with God, that's not because sin separates you. It's because something internally within you mm. feels separate, um, and so you need to feel better about yourself. You need to express yourself in a different way. Versus historic Christianity is no, there is an actual real separation that needs to be dealt with. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really well put. I like that psychological gospel because that's kind of what what it is. It's like if if you're if you're separated, it's just because you think you are. So you need to fix your mind rather than, you know, you don't have a sin problem that needs to be fixed by Jesus. You have like a, a psychological. That's, that's very interesting. I, I think that's well put. Yeah, and it's kind of like they they get their cake and eat it too. They can they can, uh, you know, call themselves Christian, 
but then not deny themselves and they can still have their pride and do what they want and make up God how they want to make up God in their, and it's reversing, it's making God in their image rather than us being made in God's image. Yeah. And, and like you said too, going back to the fall, it sounds like they're denying almost the fall of Adam and how that even in some of them even say like, was Adam even a real person? So the root really goes back to the Garden of Eden, like you were saying. Well, and I'll tell you, that's a, a really good point, because uh, one thing some progressive Christians are even starting to say is that one of the pillars of progressive theology is is like a Darwinian type of evolutionary yep. paradigm. So they're absolutely, in fact, if I don't know of any progressive Christians who think Adam and Eve existed as, as real historical people, yep. at least, again, in the sense that we would say it, you know, maybe Adam and Eve were some sort of evolved primate in their view, but as far as a special creation, God creating Adam from the ground and Eve from his side, like that is just uh, hilarious to them to think that anybody would think that actually happened. Yeah. And so going to, I mean, all, all of this is grounded in the Bible. So we're going to say that, I mean, not just say, but recognize the Bible as God's word. And so you go into a little bit of manuscript history of the Bible, not just, oh, I believe the Bible, therefore it's true, because that can go on the other side. Of the right. progressives say, well, I have my own beliefs about the Bible, therefore that's true. And all different faith traditions can say, well, I believe this, and that could be considered true. So you you ground it, you ground the Bible in actual historical truth. So what like what what kind of led you towards that road, and how do you see that helping us versus just saying, no, I believe the Bible is true. Well, I one of the things so in in the apologetics world, there's sort of these two camps. There's presuppositional apologetic, apologetics and then evidentialists. I yep. think there's great value in both totally. personally. Um, but I took the more evidential route when mm -hmm. when my that's just who I found were the evidentialists. And so the evidentialist case made so much sense to me for the Bible. And um, because if we just start with the assumption that the Bible is true and that it's God's word, well, then you end up, at least in the mind of someone else, you end up with circular logic. Like, well, why do you believe the Bible is true? Because the Bible says so. Well, you know, so it, it ends up. Um, so I, I like for skeptics, the evidential approach, I think, is extremely valuable. And basically what we, what it does is it builds a case for the reliability of the, of the text itself first, before we even think about whether it's divine, whether it's inerrant, whether it's inspired, like put all that to the side. Let's just look at the manuscript tradition, how the manuscripts were were copied, what level of accuracy do we have for the manuscripts that were copied? And then, okay, so if we have an accurate copy, does that do they tell the truth about what happened in history, particularly around the life of Jesus and the apostles? And so there, there are different ways to, to go about looking at that different criterion that historians look at to, to know whether something is actually eyewitness testimony or if it's sort of a made up story that may have, you know, uh, survived the test of time or something. And so we look at that. And then when we when we get to the point where we're like, OK, we know we have an accurate copy and there's really good reason to think that as particularly around the Gospels, that this tells the truth about this man, Jesus of, of Nazareth, right? Um, then you can get to the resurrection from, well, and you can actually, what's interesting is there's even evidence for the resurrection outside of the Bible. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if if you never had a Bible, you could know from non-Christian history within 150 years of Jesus' life yep. that his earliest followers believed they saw him alive and they were willing to go to their deaths, not recanting that, that belief. And then, you know, people will say, well, what about, that's kind of like what Muslims do. It's not exactly what Muslims Muslims do because Muslims are basing their martyrdom on what they believe to be true, but they weren't there. 
Just like you and I, we might give our lives for Christianity and that would be based on our belief, but we weren't eyewitnesses. We weren't there. These are the eyewitnesses. Nobody would die for something that they actually know is a, is a lie, right? It, it just, that, that wouldn't make sense. Nobody would go through that if they just made it up to get money and power and yeah. whatever. They, they'd be like, you know, the second it got tough, they'd be like, oh, let's try something else. But these guys went to their, we know that from secular history. So, uh, you know, you take all of that and kind of put it together. And where it lands for me is I say, okay, so the guy that claimed to be God did all these miracles, was resurrected from the dead. Like, I, I'm going to let him tell me what the Bible is. And so then if you trace, Jesus had tons to say about the Old Testament scriptures. And, you know, some people say, well, yeah, but he didn't say anything about the new. But then my response to that is, isn't the old what everybody's got a problem with anyway? I mean, that's <laughs> yeah, kind of like. Exactly. You know? So he, he over and over called the Old Testament scriptures the word of God. He didn't he didn't talk about the Old Testament the way progressives do. He wasn't saying things like, hey, Moses was just doing his best to figure God out in the time and place that he lived. But, you know, we, we, I'm here to tell to set the record straight. And in fact, in the Sermon of the Mount, in that famous section where he he goes through i wrote a research paper on this section which is why it's so vivid in my mind but when he says you know you've heard it said but i say a lot of progressives will say well he was changing oh he didn't change anything mm. if anything he took the old testament came and made it harder exactly to, yeah to fulfill harder to do and then a couple of those you've heard it said one of them wasn't even from scripture it was more of a saying and then the other one uh, was i'm trying to remember what I, I wrote the research paper on but he never changed what the old testament scripture said nope. if anything if it was an old testament command he was actually making it more impossible to mm -hmm. obey and so strengthening that command in that sense and so he he was so even he says to the to the scribes he was like you're in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of god why if he didn't think the scriptures were the perfect word of God, why would he use that as the standard by which to say they were in error? Yeah. So if we look at what Jesus thought about the scriptures, um, you know, it's very clear that he thought they were inspired uh, without error, the, the word of God, authoritative. I mean, that's that's what he used to fight temptation in the wilderness was the, the Old Testament scriptures. So I, you know, obviously, as you can tell, I get excited about this stuff, yeah, but totally, that, yeah. a, it's it. a fun <laughs> case to build because it's, it's like, it's really, for me, it's not just, oh, I believe the Bible is the word of God because I had some mystical experience and God told me that. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, actually, I can't get away from all of this evidence that tells me that what Jesus said is what he really said and that he was resurrected. I have to reckon with that. Like, and here's what he says the scriptures are. So like, I have to reckon with that as a, as an investigator, I guess I would say. Yeah. And Christianity invites those hard questions. The Bible invites those hard questions. Yes. The more you read the Bible yeah. and, and it asks it, those hard questions too. Yeah. You're going to be, you're going to get further, con your faith is going to grow uh, versus other religions and their script, their type of uh, Bible would be, yeah. the more you research it, the more the, 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 it gets unwound and it, the, the Bible gets more solid and the more you study it. Well, and it's so interesting too how, like you said, it invites questioning because Paul even said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith <laughs> is in vain and you're still in your sins. Mm -hmm. He's essentially saying that you, if anyone, and he was saying this while all like, eyewitnesses were alive, like, you know, most of the people who would have been eyewitnesses to this were still alive. And he's basically challenging them. He's saying, if you can prove that Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead, like we'll call it a day. We'll, we'll pack it in and we'll go do something else. Mm -hmm. 
and in that sense, it's falsifiable. And people, Christians hear that like Christianity is falsifiable. It sounds scary, but no, it's actually really great because you don't have that in any other religion. You you basically have a set of teachings that might work for people, or you have some doctrines that, that help people with their lives to feel better or do better in their lives. But Christianity is based on a historical, well, it's not based on it, but it stands or falls based on the resurrection happening yeah. or not happening. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and Paul invites that skepticism. He's like, you know, if you can prove it wrong, we'll we'll call it a, we'll call it a day. Yeah, that's that's true, and I think we've seen not that, but we've seen something like this with the deconstruction movement. I mean, really kind of kicking steam over the past five to six years, where mm-hmm. prominent evangelicals coming, whether it be singers or former pastors or authors or whatever it may have been. Um, and I think you you have a you know so you you have a good conversation about they're not rejecting historic Christianity they're rejecting their interpretation or the interpretation that they've been given of Christianity so what so kind of to help people out what what do you think not what's their process obviously but those those who are considering or saying I'm not sure about some of this stuff what what resources that you used that you saw that you were pointed towards obviously writing this book. Um, giving this, but what resources would you point them to? Is say, no, this, the interpretation, if it's if it's away from historic Christianity, um, how would you point them back to historic Christianity? Not just saying, oh, it's objective feelings, um, feel good stuff, but it's it's an actual historical reliable fact that what we have is true. Well, I mean, the, I think the first thing that I would do is point them back to the Bible. I know that sounds really simple, but <laughs> yeah. what I have discovered is that, I mean, you have this one level of progressive Christian teacher that knows the Bible really well. Like they have their scholars, they have their thinkers, their intellectuals for sure. And these people know the Bible very well, but I don't know, the average person in the pew. And by the way, I'll just apply this to our side of the fence as well. There's a lot of people in our pews that don't know their Bibles either. So, I mean, that's not just unique to them. But I think going back to really know what the Bible says, it was very interesting I was reading um, a progressive book uh, with a friend of mine, and we were going to be doing a review together, and she was reading through the Gospels, and this one particular progressive book was saying a lot of things about Jesus as a person, like who Jesus was, what he was like, what his personality, what he loves, what he's advocating for, all of this. And we were out walking one day, and she said, you know, it's it's just absolutely mind-blowing reading this book at the same time I'm reading through the Gospels again, because it's like I'm reading two accounts of two entirely different people. Like this is not the same person. You don't have to be a scholar to be able to spot the counterfeit. Just make sure, Mm. you know, make sure that you know the real thing really well. And I mean, that's certainly, uh, you know, as an apologist, I I think it's, it's great to look at all the evidence and all of that, but also just really know what Christianity is. Because if you know that, you're not gonna be as, as fooled as quickly. If you really know Jesus and you get to know Jesus by reading the gospels, not like mystical experiences we have with him in our closet, because that could be your brain. Yeah, that could just exactly. be your feelings, right? I mean, we, we get to know Jesus in the scriptures. And and when you know that Jesus, and don't don't ignore the Jesus of Revelation, because a lot of progressives, they'll even go with some of the gospel Jesus, but they don't like Revelation Jesus. I mean, get to know Jesus. And, and I would say that would be a really good place to start, because I think a lot of times people aren't very biblically literate we, in our yeah. church as well. So um, maybe, I don't know if that that's probably a good place to start. Yeah, and that's, yeah, I, that's huge, too, with people where I think a lot of these arguments that progressive Christians make do kind of land with them because they don't know their Bible very well. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if they're told some of this stuff, it's like, oh, I guess that kind of makes sense, kind of an irrational point of view. But yeah, when you know the Bible 
obviously you can't know you can know as much as you possibly can with study um but it's hard to defend if you don't yeah like you said you don't know the 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 actual document that they're also trying to destroy as well and i I think there's like a sense of arrogance that they think we in 2021 know better than the eyewitnesses and the Mm -hmm. authors and the early church fathers knew it's like like you said earlier we weren't eyewitnesses there like we should trust scripture you know and it almost seems like progressive christianity should be called more regressive yeah i have apologetics friends who they they'll say that progressive Hmm. christianity is neither progressive or christian it's regressive and it's not (laughs) christian but to your point about the um the the arrogance this is something c.s lewis called chronological snobbery exactly yeah and and he he described it as the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate so whatever's big in the intellectual climate you don't critically you know, parse through it, you just accept it. And I think we see that so often in, and again, not necessarily with the thinkers, but the layperson. they're like, oh, that sounds good. You know, that, that sounds right. But they're not thinking critically about why do you actually believe what that person is saying? Why do you actually believe that? Because I'll tell you in that class that I was in with the pastor that we'd started the show with, there were so many, um, things that I didn't know how to answer. I, I mean, I would try to refute them. I go home and Google stuff and I did, you know, but yeah. boy, I knew the Bible though. And I even said, I even told you earlier, I didn't have the best hermeneutics, but I knew what it said. Hmm. And so when he would take a verse out of context hmm. or when he would, um, you know, twist it in to make it mean something different than it just obviously means when you read through the whole thing, that's when I was able to say like, wait a second, because I remember there was this one class where he said, he was really trying to, to do a gotcha on me. And he said, Elisa, you know, I know for a fact that you disagree with the Bible on things. And I said, I, I don't think that you're going to find a case where I do. Yeah. And he said, okay, well, Jesus said that if you want to follow him, you have to hate your mother. Do you hate your mother? <laughs> yeah. And now I'm so thankful to God for the little preparations that he had done all through my life. Because I remember reading that verse in high school and uh, kind of yeah. going, wait, what? Jesus, you have to hate your mother? And so I got out my dad's Vines Expository Greek Dictionary. And I was doing like, I didn't know how to do a word study, but I was doing my best to do a word study. And then it was like, oh, well, that makes sense. The word, like, you know, it has more to do with preferring one thing over another. It has to do with that. So I brought that up to him. I said, well, the word that's translated in English it, it, there doesn't mean hate in the sense of like the thing we're commanded not to do, but it actually has to do with preferring. It's saying, Jesus is saying you have to prefer him over your mother. And then the pastor said, you're right. He knew that. Hmm. He knew that. And yet he still was trying to make me think I disagreed with the Bible. And I don't know, like, had I just said, well, I guess I disagree. He might've moved on and not ever told me that that wasn't actually what it meant. So you, you we, and I just use that as an, a cautionary tale. Like you have to be, I'm not saying every progressive pastor is intentionally deceiving. I do believe that 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 he was, but um, but you know, but you still like they could just even have uncritically accepted something, and because it sounds good and it's the climate, you know. But you got to question stuff. You got to think critically. It's so important. Hmm. Yeah, and that's and it's it's a I think a, a critique that we don't just place on progressives. We can place that on a lot of conservative Christians who. Um, it's what we were told, even if it's true, or uh, it's what we heard, or it's what we saw, and therefore we just accept it as it is, and so we don't really dig deeper into it. And then when it is, when somebody does come in with a sledgehammer and takes that top portion down, we're like, there's nothing below this foundation. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I think that even like to use my own story as an example of that, I mentioned like I thought that it was just normal to take like an Old Testament story of a battle and like allegorize it. I didn't yeah, know that's yeah. what I was doing. I mean, yeah. I knew it really happened. I wasn't, yeah. you know, but I would just like make that an allegory for some kind of battle I was going on in my own life. And that was all it meant to me. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't have any clue who the Amorites were. Any, I didn't care. Mm -hmm. It was just, you know, that was the battle. And so like, like you said, like we have to think, I had to think critically when I was reconstructing my faith and go, that wasn't the right way to read that. Mm -hmm. Even as, as good as it made me feel to do that, there were things I had to change, like let go of because of this critical thinking that I really, that were worked really well for me, but they just weren't true. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I think that in a way, I, I'm not asking anybody to do something that I didn't have to do for myself. There was there were several things about the way that I was raised that I, I had to think about it critically and go, as good as it has always made me feel to go with that, I don't believe that's correct. I don't think that's the right view. And so I've had to make changes um, that actually emotionally were difficult because I, it worked and I liked it. Uh, so, so I think we all have to do that no matter where we're coming from. Yeah. Yeah. It's not critical in the sense that we're critiquing the Bible. It's critical in the sense that we are thinking critically, uh, thoughts after God's thoughts. We are thinking about the Bible, not to critique it, but to build a foundation below it, some stuff below it to where if something does crack on top of it, which I think we've seen over the last couple of years, then we do have some substantial foundation below kind of that surface level understanding. Yeah. Yeah. And you helped to find textual criticism really well in the book too, for, for the audience. And um, I would, I have a question. So maybe your day-to-day -day life or your week-to-week -week life, what is one of your most common apologetic responses based on critiques uh, that you've gotten or questions that you've gotten? Or if you could just pick one out of the book that you just really think help out a lot. Hmm. Well, you know, you mentioned textual criticism. I think that's a huge one, actually, especially with the rise in popularity of scholars like Bart Ehrman, who um, all, in almost every, well, I, I don't want to over-exaggerate that, but in many of the deconstruction stories that I've listened to, he has played a major role. And I think what yep. can tend to happen, and for anyone unfamiliar with Bart Ehrman, he grew up evangelical Christian, walked away from his faith after he... Uh, well, there were several things. I think it was more about the problem of suffering for him, but also just this con this supposed contradiction he found in the Gospel of Mark that just rocked his world. And he thought, well, gosh, I've built my whole life on the Bible being inerrant. And if I have found this contradiction, it must all be false. And and, and, and he's very persuasive and rhetorical in his writing, very popular lay-level writer. So I think what's happening is a lot of times when someone has already decided they're out they'll discover someone like Bert Ehrman who basically gives them their apologetic to leave. Yeah, and yeah. so um, I think that's why it's really important to listen to textual criticism. I mean, Bart Ehrman debated Dan Wallace several times. It's very interesting debates to listen to. Mm -hmm. Peter Williams has debated him. Kruger, Michael mm -hmm. Kruger has debated him. Uh, so it's not like his his views are not being questioned by peers, you know, they're they're being questioned. A lot of scholars who are saying, no, he's he's exaggerating a lot of this for persuasive intent. And so, um, and one of those areas would be with textual criticism. Uh, now, interestingly, when I was doing a bunch of research for my book, I read I read um, some of his work. I subscribed to his blog for a while, and and when I was reading through his blog, I was really surprised at how much he agrees with 
some of these more conservative scholars yeah. on the facts. You know, he agrees about how many variants there are. I mean, this he just analyzes those things a little differently. But um, I think that's a huge one. And so, so I guess the the skeptical claim would be, and and I heard this, you know, in in the class as well, is that you know we we can't even know <laughs> that what's sitting in our laps is what they actually wrote because yeah. there are so many differences. They might even use the word mistakes between the manuscripts. And so what I just try to do is give a very broad flyover explanation for the average Christian. Like put inerrancy, put inspiration, we can explore how that, how what I'm about to say affects all that. And I'm happy to have that conversation. We just put that aside for a second. And what we have to realize is that back when the Bible was being written, the printing press did not exist. So all of the copies had to be handwritten and they were handwritten by human beings and so there are going to be variations between the manuscripts there's going to be uh, variations in the way words are spelled there's going to be words flipped in order there's going to be a, maybe a line skipped if the scribe got tired and maybe missed a line or something like that um, but even Bart Ehrman, you know, admitted in his, I believe it was his debate with Dan Wallace, that the vast majority of the differences that we have over the 5,000 plus manuscripts that we have, which, by the way, is a tremendous amount of, of manuscripts, the vast majority of the differences that we find between the manuscripts, none of those affect the meaning. We still know what it says. And so there is a small percentage that scholars are still split. Like um, I use the example in my book where Jesus says this kind of referring to demonic possession, this kind only comes out by prayer. And then some translations say prayer and fasting. Well, that's one of those meaningful variants where scholars are split. Like, did he say prayer and fasting or did he say prayer? And so there is a little bit of, of things in, in a few verses like that, very small percentage where scholars are not sure of the original wording. But... And even our airman admits this. There's not one essential core Christian doctrine that is called into question by mm -hmm. any of these variants. And we know what they are. It's not like, oh, I hope the resurrection doesn't end up being a variant. You know, we know what the variants are because we have the manuscripts. And so for me, if someone is going to walk away from the faith, because there is a, depending on which scholar you ask, anywhere from 0.5% to 3% of a little bit of unsurety about some some minutia in the wording of some certain scriptures, but the gospel's the same. You have all of that. They're going to walk away because of that. There is something else going on, right? There's something else going on, and it's not biblical reliability. And so that that sort of would be the broad answer I would give on that. Yeah, and I, I think so. I heard this on a, a podcast a couple of weeks ago, and reading a couple uh, textual criticism books, and knowing a little bit of Greek and Hebrew, it's the very assumption that there are variants that presumes that there's a, an original manuscript that we can base that variant off of. And yeah. so you have a variant, you can only say there's a variant if you know somehow how to reconstruct the original. Yeah. Or well, else if there's no construct, reconstructable original, you don't have a variant. Well, right. Well, yes, but I think sometimes what they're talking about with variants is variations between the actual copied manuscripts. Yeah. So if you have one manuscript that's... Yeah. You know, but you're right. It's like um, you can't know that it's an actual mistake unless you have the original to measure it, you know, or you can't claim that it's a mistake unless you actually know and you have a copy of the original. And Ehrman doesn't have a copy of the original. So when he says there are mistakes all throughout the Bible and where the the what you have in your lap varies from the original by this many things, he's just guessing because he yep. doesn't have an original to be able to say that's actually the case. <clears throat> Yeah, and it's it's yeah, helpful yeah. for us too. And we, it's funny that I mean, because you said we have five thousand. It's like fifty eight hundred is I think the last count fifty seven hundred something around there. Um, and I think we have like 
12 manuscripts for Plato. It's like whatever, whatever the manuscript count we have for the New Testament is astronomically above, which doesn't mean anything that we can't rely. It's we have so much source yeah. material that we can yeah. reconstruct based off that source material. So it shouldn't freak us out that we have so much. It should actually be our comfort that we have so much. Exactly. Because to do good textual criticism, you need two things. You need a lot of manuscripts and you need the earliest possible manuscripts. And and we have like the New Testament has more and earlier manuscripts than and it dwarfs. I mean, it's not just by a little bit like it dwarfs any other yeah, uh, yeah. work of, of classical literature. In fact, it's so it's so interesting to me. Because especially like in the world I'm in and with the progressive Christianity world and skeptical scholarship and all that, they're so quick to bring the gospel, like the, some of the Gnostic gospels that were written later yeah. and yeah. bring those in and say, oh, you know, what? hold on. Like we have these lost gospels. Well, first of all, they were written much later mm -hmm. than the early ones. But even for the Gospel of Thomas, we have four manuscripts. Yeah. So the same people. <laughs> yeah. Who are saying you can't rely on the New Testament, but you know, hey, the the Gospel of Thomas, you know, let's let's look at this. You've got four manuscripts for the Gospel of Thomas, and yeah. and it's just you know, it's it's a little bit of a. There's a lot of rhetorical power in the way people present some of the <clears throat> the information that we have and the the actual data that we have. Yeah, and it's I mean, because I've read most of the apocryphal or the the extant Gospels. And have you ever read those and compared those to the Gospels? They're nothing. Like the right. gospels that we have. Right. Absolutely. Well, cool. That's I mean, that's all the I mean, if Nick, if you want to ask another question, that's that's the that's the extent of the questions that I have on 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 this topic. Yeah, I mean, again, this book was incredible. And there's a couple kind of underlying parts in some pages that I think would just be great to bring out to the audience. I don't know if you have the book in front of you, but I could even read it. It's the bottom of page. 224, right at the end of chapter 11, where you're saying progressive Christians are simply constructing a codependent and impotent God who is powerless to stop evil. That God is not really good. That God is not the God of the Bible. That God cannot save you. I think that was a great way to kind of put it all together and show that that, that is another gospel. That is not the gospel of the Bible. That is not the true God. Um, I think, I think, I, you know, it's just, I'm just glad to call you a friend, a sister, an ally, being the foxhole with you in the trenches, yes. fighting against this, this false, false gospels out there. And so I'd love for you to kind of maybe help with a closing remark to the audience. If they find themselves, um, looking to deconstruct, don't know where to go, feel lost, um, maybe they're in it, maybe they're in one of these churches, maybe they even like it. And maybe a call to be like, you know, you should probably consider going to a confessionally true Christian church. Yeah, so here's the here's sort of the gentle challenge I would put out there to anyone who might be tempted by progressive Christianity. Um I'll bring up a guy named uh, Bart Campolo. So he's the son of uh, mm -hmm. famous evangelist Tony Campolo, who's really more on the progressive side of things now. But Bart, his son, deconstructed and is now a secular humanist. He's a, I believe he's still a chaplain um, on a college campus, a secular chaplain on a college campus. But he talks about how he went through a progressive phase on his way out of the faith. And, and he said, you know, all of these pillars start falling 
And he, he predicted, I can't remember the exact number because I don't have it in front of me, but he predicted that many people who call themselves progressive Christians are going to end up in secular humanism or atheism mm -hmm. because they're denying what it actually is. And, and his point was like, let's just be intellectually honest. And I really agree with him on that. I think that what I would mm -hmm. prefer is I'm not against progressive Christians. I, I think everybody has to think through what they believe. And if you think Christianity is false, you have, I mean, every right to say, look, I believe this is a false belief system. I don't buy it. Um, but I guess my gentle challenge would be, is if that's the case, if you've come to the conclusion that Jesus wasn't really God, he wasn't resurrected from the dead, um, he didn't live a sinless life, um, he didn't die on the cross in any meaningful substitutionary sense for your sins to reconcile a sinful person to holy God. If you don't believe that, um, you have every right to believe that and respect you. I, res I, I think tolerance is a good thing. We should tolerate people's beliefs, right? Yeah, tolerance, yeah. that's what it's supposed to mean is that we disagree, but we, we let, you know, we respect each other's right to say what we think. Yeah, but yeah. my challenge would be don't call yourself a Christian. And it might sound harsh, but it's really um, it's really a point I try to drive home in one of the talks that I give about the areas where progressive Christians disagree with Jesus. If you disagree with Jesus about what the Bible is, you have every right to do that. And I respect that. But don't call yourself a Jesus follower. Hmm. Don't call yourself a Christian if you're going to disagree with Jesus on the Bible or if you're going to disagree with Jesus on marriage and sex or if you're going to disagree with with Jesus on the purpose of his atonement, which he quoted Isaiah 53 mm -hmm. and said, this is about me. He quoted that in the upper room. He said, the scriptures are fulfilled in me. So he clearly believed that he was the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. Read yeah. Isaiah 53. If you disagree that that guy is Jesus, I respect that. But don't call yourself a Jesus follower because he said that that was him. And so I, I think that that would be my gentle challenge to somebody mm -hmm. who might be buying into it is, um, you know, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, your beliefs should be Christian beliefs. And I think that's the main problem I have with progressive Christianity is that it it tricks a lot of people into thinking, oh, I'm a Christian, but then all of the beliefs they hold are not Christian beliefs. And so that would be my call is is to to let's keep our words defined precisely. And if you're not a Christian, I respect you. Like, let's go have dinner, whatever. But don't call yourself a Christian if you believe Christianity is false. Hmm. Right. That's that's a good it's a good call to be to be realistic, to be consistent. Um, with what you believe and what you, in a sense, call yourself. So where can people find you? Where are you on? How can they find your podcast or social media? And do you have anything else that you're working on that people can look forward to after reading this book and say, I want to I want to learn more from Melissa? Yeah, actually, I, you guys, I'm turning in my second manuscript today. Ah, to publish. Nice. So yeah, I've got, I I've, I've finished it. I'm just going to kind of tweak through a few things and I'm sending that in tonight. So that'll be out fall of 2022 and it's called Live Your Truth and Other Lies. Hmm. And uh, the subtitle is How Popular Deceptions Are Making Us uh, Anxious, Self-Obsessed and Exhausted. And so we just examine some of these little catchy cultural phrases and look at what the Bible has to say about that. So that's gonna be coming out in a, well, it'll be about a year from now uh, once we get through editing and all that stuff. Um, and then where you can find me is a uh, YouTube, Alisa Childers, the Alisa Childers podcast on Spotify, iTunes, all that, uh, all of that's on alisachilders.com. You can find links to everything. So, yeah. Cool. Well, it sounds, it sounds like we've, we've got another book club date in a year. Yeah. Yes. That'd be great. Thank you, Alisa. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for describing your book. And I think a movement that's been gaining steam, but your book, and I mean, obviously, yeah below this foundation is know your Bible really well, read some good books, know your faith, 
question things, but question things with with a, a with a flavor of truth and grace. So yeah, thanks for coming on our podcast. Thanks for talking about your book. Oh, it was so much fun. Thanks, you guys. Thank you. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world. And how to best do that is rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, and you, after you rate a review or instead of rate and review or doing everything all in once, retweeting us on Twitter, liking us on Twitter, liking us on Instagram, following us on both of those platforms, because that actually puts in front of people's physical face, this podcast, these guests, and most importantly, the gospel, the doctrines uh, that these guests are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing and, uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian <laughs> theology. Exactly. The yeah. And you guys can find that link on Anchor, our official Anchor website. If you just go on um, our social media links, it'll, it'll link you to that website. It's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes. If you're on this podcast, this specific episode, scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating. So we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap, pay for shipping, get nicer stuff, all for the focus of spreading the gospel further. Yep, all for the kingdom of God. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you guys next time.